Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. So apparently I have to project my voice. I'm not loud enough. I want a loud... Oh, see, it keeps turning me down. My volume should be way up there. That would be better. Is that louder? That is louder, but from my end, it sounds very staticky. Staticky now. Uh, now I think it's okay. Maybe someone can let you know from the from watching it on YouTube too. You, you, hear, you, me, you hear me as staticky right now? Um, just a, a little unclear. It's louder, but mm. a little unclear. Uh, but so maybe it was, it was better, quieter. From my perspective, but it may sound different on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, apparently, Hangouts on Air is shutting down, so we're going to have to switch over to YouTube anyway. Not that that'll change the sound of my voice. Apparently, that makes the audio the audio's worse over there, apparently. Anyway. Whatever. Do, do we know when that is, Monte? Yeah, September, I think, so soon. All right, so today we're looking at what happened here. We're looking at uh, look at a simple teaching, something that's important to talk about, but not not all that complicated. It's the recognition of what the Buddha called. Uh, the gratification, asada, asada. Asada is a, a word that you don't hear often enough, I don't think. But it's the admission of, of pleasure, the admission of the positive, aspect of desire that when you want something well you can get it you can be gratified by by getting what you want that has to be acknowledged it's important that we don't ignore that because that's the argument that we're trying to refute that's the misunderstanding we're trying to address we don't acknowledge that that is the confusion, that the confusion is surrounding this. And that the reason why we're in trouble is because of this. And we can miss the... Um, we can miss the whole point of, of the practice or the whole uh, focus the core of the problem. We never get to the root. Beating around the bush, trying to tell us no, tell ourselves no, sensual pleasures are bad, greed is bad. But there's always this small voice saying, asada, asada, it's enjoyable. I like it. You have to address that. You have to accept that that's 
it's real. There is a true gratification. The problem is, this is the thing, the Buddhists, there are three aspects. And remember, we're in the book of three, so we're looking, starting at Sutta 103, the third 50. Lutheranikai Book of Three is starting at Sutta 103, 104 in the Pali. This is what he asked himself. He said, Before I was enlightened, Pubeva Samboda Anabhisambuddhasa Bodhisatta Seva Sato Etadohosi. There came to me this thought. What is the gratification in the world? It's the first thing. But the second thing, what is the the problem? Goadino, the 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 problem really, the negative aspect, the catch. Kingni saranang, and what is the escape? The release. Because there is a problem, and that's the key. Is that you can rail all you want about how pleasant it is to get what you want, but there's a problem. You can't always get what you want. And in fact, more than just not getting what you want, the things that you want are unstable. They're ephemeral. They last only a moment. They don't satisfy. They gratify, but they don't satisfy. And there's a difference. Yes, it's pleasant to get what you want. How long does the pleasant state last? How long does it, the enjoyment of getting what you want last? A brief moment. Buddha said it's like... Uh, a bone smeared with blood when you give it to a dog they're so happy and they gnaw on the bone and they taste the blood but they're never satisfied they're gratified but they're not satisfied they, they, they don't they don't become satiated by the, the, the gnawing on the bone. If you're not clear, if you're not really practicing meditation, it's very difficult to see this, but you can see it in everything when you begin to meditate. You sit down to eat and you think, oh, this is delicious food. As you're mindful, you see, oh, well, hmm. yes, it's enjoyable for a moment, and then it's gone, and then there's just the taste maybe enjoyable for another moment, but then my mind is off wandering and the pleasure is gone. The meditators who come to meditate, come to stay with us after some time, they begin to find eating a chore. The food is still good, hopefully. Um, but everywhere I've been, no matter what the food is like, near the end of the course, the meditators begin to 
and think, oh, now I've got to go eat again. You know, if only I didn't have to go and eat, which is an odd, an odd thing to hear for most people. And think, wow, food is one of life's great pleasures, especially in Thailand. No, you got all this wonderful Thai food that everyone loves. And your meditators coming, and oh, the food is so great. Wonderful food in this meditation center. And then you start to see mm, that that wonderfulness of the food is like a bone smeared with blood. It's really kind of tainted. It just causes more stress. Eventually you, be, you realize that you start to see how much stress it is to to like and to want things and to crave things. And you'll be sitting in meditation, you'll be craving and you can't have, and you oh, the terrible stress. So the Buddha said there's a adinava, there's a catch, there's a problem with the, with the nature of things. Getting what you want is not really all that it's cut out to be doesn't solve anything it just makes you more thirsty you need it more you want it more chase it more and so that's the situation we find ourselves in this is the truth most people don't want to see let alone admit don't want to admit let alone see We want to believe that there are things out there that will satisfy us. And so we chase after sensual gratification, we chase after all sorts of things. Goals and ideas, ideals, ambitions. We chase and we want and we crave and we need and we get. And we were, we were gratified by what we get, but we're never satisfied. And we fight and we kill each other for this. This is what send, sets families against each other. It's what sets friends against each other. It's what sets cultures and societies, nations. It's what sets the world on fire. It's why the world is on fire right now why the climate is it's degrading. I mean, whether you believe or not in, in climate change, it's quite clear what we're doing to most of the world. And there's so much beauty in the world, things that we find pleasant and delicate and beautiful. That it's all, it's funny, you know, all, the, all that we find beautiful by chasing after it, by by, by trying to um, distill it down to its most pure essence. We crave it more, right? You see flowers, well, it's not enough to see flowers. You want to have them in your home, so you cut them. And as you cut them, they, well, they stop growing. Or it becomes more difficult because everyone wants them, so you have to hoard them or you have to grow them in special and then it becomes who can afford the flowers and 
who can afford the delicious food, the best food. And then people want more delicate food, and so they grow harder to grow food. And then we want it more immediately. And we wind up in the state. We wind up with what we see now, what we see in modern times. The world is not nearly as beautiful as it once was. All the things that we found beautiful that we've tried to capture in our homes, all the pleasant sensations that we've tried to enhance with our comfortable beds and couches and our, our luxuries. We've, we've ruined the earth as a result. We've made it less beautiful, more coarse. And this is the nature, this is the way of things. The more you chase after things, the more you destroy them, the more you sully them, the more you crave them more intensely. This is how they say pornography works. It begins you like you enjoy seeing beautiful people, beautiful shapes, sensual shapes. And so you look at pictures, and then pictures aren't enough, and then it goes on to movies, and then those movies aren't enough, and then it goes on to more and more coarse and more and coarser and coarser until you drive yourself insane, you become addicted. There's a site out there on, on how pornography works or how pornography addiction works. I know because my video is on it, on my video on pornography addiction. did it many years ago, and it's still to this date my, by far my most popular video. As opposed to my, my least popular, where I talk about how terrible cats are. I had to remove that one. So what is the escape? These are the two, and then the third thing the Buddha says, the third thing you have to know is what is the escape? Nisaranancha, nisaranato. The escape is the escape. Let's see what the Buddha says. I mean, basically, Just want to get the Buddha's words on it. I don't think we have a. I don't see an exact. I mean, so what is the escape? Well, the escape is simply with the giving up of the gratification. It's really the seeing this. This is what we see in meditation. You see how, yes, it's gratifying, and it's important to see. It's important to accept. Yes, I want this. I like this. I crave this. Accept that. Accept that as a fact. If you don't, if you try and pretend or try and control yourself, control your mind and say, no, bad, you shouldn't want that. You'll never get to the core of the matter. You'll never come to the truth. Truth is truth. I want this. I want that. I like this. I like that. That's why the Buddha said, when you like something, don't deny it. Embrace the truth. I like this. Liking, liking. Embrace the truth. Because the truth is 
there's a problem, there's a catch. And when you see that catch, when you see that problem, when you start to see the true problem with gratification, with seeking gratification, with believing that gratification somehow leads to satisfaction, when you see that, it doesn't. See, the gratification leads to stress. It's what leads to all the problems in the world that we see. All the problems in our mind, all the craziness in the mind. And once you see that, your mind starts to let go. Nisarana starts to escape, starts to turn away. We have this word called nibida, nibindati. Atta nibindati duke. One becomes disenchanted is the word loses the luster, the, the shine. The Buddha said, Eta pasati manglo kang chitang rajarutupamang yata bale nisidanti nati nati Sango, Pandita. Anyway, Eta Pasati Manglokang, come look at this world. Jitangra Jaradu Pamang. He looks to the mind like a beautiful royal chariot, all decked out with jewels and gold and wonderful things. The world seems full of wonderful things. Yata Bal Bala Nisidanti, that fools fall into. Fools get caught up in it, but the wise find no connection. And so then you start to see the cracks and you start to see the problems. The mind begins to let go, not from denying that you like things, but from seeing, oh, liking things is such a terrible thing. Oh, to not like anymore. Oh, to not want. How to be free from this. And you turn away and you give up. And you become bored of it. You become tired of it. You see it so much. You watch your mind clinging and craving and wanting. You let it go. This comes from seeing. It comes from looking, comes from seeing, comes from practicing, observing. This is what meditation is all about, not denying. I think that's an important teaching. It starts with the gratification. That's where the practice starts. See how much we love things. And, and acknowledging that. And looking deeper, looking to see what it means to love things, to want things, to crave things. Objectively, because that's the power of the truth, is that it stands up to inquiry. It stands up to investigation. Belief doesn't. Belief is is nothing in the face of inquiry. But truth, a truth, a claim of the truth, is something that you can investigate. Well, claim of the truth, but some something. The truth is something you can find for yourself. Anyway. So that's the Dhamma for tonight. The gratification, the problem, and the escape.
because you have to escape. There's only one way. Either you escape or you go around in circles. And you suffer. Then you're never satisfied. No peace. All right. Any questions? Lots of questions. Yes. During meditation, is there a problem when the pace of noting is inconsistent, mostly too fast, but sometimes very slow? I answered that already last night. Okay. I try to be very open, honest, and loving with everybody, but people often seem to be wary, cautious, skeptical. It causes misunderstandings. How do I better come across as a person who means no harm? Well, you may be trying too hard. And better than being all those things is being mindful. Because the, be the way that people react the best to you is when you're, when you're yourself, when you're, yeah, it's a cliche to say it's not really true, but when you're natural. You know, an, an enlightened being is not something, you know, they don't dazzle you or speak in deep voice or something. An enlightened being is, is natural, is at peace, you know. So we resonate with each other. And sure, you're going to be surrounded by people who have all sorts of crazy defilements inside. No matter how great you are, you're surrounded by such people. And so if you let it get to you, then that's a, a strike on you. It's a stress on you. And so that's the most important, is to be at peace and to be unshakable so that you can absorb the defilements that people have, but you're like a, what, do you, what are these things, like a, a filter. You clean the dirt from other people because you don't react. So if people are critical of you or, or suspicious of you or so on, well, that's on them. So what's on you is to be at peace with yourself and to be clear-minded. So I wouldn't try so hard to be something. I mean, not that those things are not good, but they should come naturally. And then you don't have to think about it. And then you don't have to worry about what other people think or how you come across, I suppose. Because you can't really control how you come across to others, right? But... It is, you do come across a lot better when you're just natural, you know, just yourself. But that's not really yourself, that's just the word. But you know how we say that, just be yourself. But it's kind of like that. It's just, don't, don't put on pretenses, don't put on airs, don't try to be something. Don't even be yourself, don't be anything. Be present, be mindful, be clear of mind, objective. My friend just said this to me. I don't want to, this is the friend saying this, I think. I don't want a compassionate heart with everyone. I prefer my coping mechanism. I developed it for a reason. How do I penetrate this attitude to help my friend? Yeah, if you could help everyone, right? You can just poof, help people. It doesn't really work that way. I can barely help all of you and you want me to help you. No. I can barely help the people who come here to do meditation courses. You have to do the work yourself. The work is for you to do yourself. 
You're not going to fix everyone's problems. You should send loving kindness to this person and wish for them to be well. But try to be a good example and be mindful. Once you see things for yourself, you'll have the answers to to all questions. So when someone when someone says something to you like, I don't want a compassionate heart, I prefer my coping mechanism, you'll understand that and you'll say, mm, well, sounds like, sounds stressful to me. Or you won't, you won't judge them or criticize them, but you'll do things to help them, to help them see that it doesn't really, isn't really peaceful. And the best way they can see that is when they see that you have a better way. You see that you're more together than they are. It's more peaceful the way you do things. Ah, to not have to cope, to be open and, and at peace, to not have to protect yourself because you're invincible. It's much better. I don't see more meaning in living as 99% of society lives studying, working, buying, consuming. The only thing that has kept me alive and not committing suicide was the meditation, the Buddhist teachings, philosophy, and the desire to live isolated, planting my own food. But I'm losing now my desire to live isolated and the desire to study philosophy. The only thing that seems reasonable for me is living a monk's life. I don't have desire to be a monk. It is a desire, but not a common desire like the others but I feel this is the only way of living. I'm 19, I saw a video of how you became a monk, and I can relate a lot about your history since I was a child, since I was a child, I wanted to know the meaning and why we suffer and what was a great philosopher. What should I do now? I simply don't know where to go. It's time to go to a monastery or should I push myself into the misery of studying and working for nothing? Yeah. Well, that's valid. Um... And it's kind of what I did, you know, I, I, I should have become a monk right away, but I didn't. Or, yeah, I mean, I think I could have convinced my parents to let me become a monk, but I kind of let them convince me not to for two years until finally I said, you know, this is enough. Um, so, yeah, I would say absolutely don't put it off. If you're at that point where you know it's the way, do it. Don't expect it to be easy. Don't expect that to be a, something that, like a door that suddenly solves all your problems. But do it. You know? No, don't don't study, don't work, don't do all that stuff for nothing. If you're ready to become a monk, do it. Find the right place and do it. Another question of where to go is it's a different question, much more complicated. Don't, but don't put it off. Don't don't like don't let society or a convention tell you what to do. Think of the bodhisattva. How how radical he was. He wasn't one of these people who just waited for things to fall in his lap or waited for the time to be right. As soon as he figured it out and said, "Man, I've got to get old, sick, and die." That's there's no way out of this. He said. I'm going to find a way out. And he just dropped everything. He, he left his, you know, can you imagine being the prince? Like, 
whether he was a big, you know, prince of a big kingdom or something, or, or not. Um, but he was a prince, or he was somehow like high up in society, and suddenly just dropped out. He he just threw it all away and said, "I've had enough of you guys." And he went off in the forest. So anyone who thinks, you know, they shouldn't do that, they're kind of uh, besmirching the, or they're disdaining the way of the Buddha. What's the deal with the various mudras? The Buddha, the Buddha rupas have various hand gestures. Is there any value or could there be any benefit in using different mudras in formal practice? What do you think? Sorry, I had myself muted. Um, well, what does he think? I want to know what he thinks. This is a okay. test. You've come this far and you've listened to me this much. I want to ask you, what do you think of that last question? I'll answer the first one. So the Buddha Rupas... Uh, the, the different mudras are supposed to, are just a means of uh, reminding us of a specific time or a specific aspect of the Buddha, like a spe specific event in some cases, or a specific aspect of the Buddha in some cases. They're just artists' representations. Buddha images came to be hundreds of years after the Buddha passed away. It wasn't something the Buddha said, okay, remember this mudra or that mudra or something. But your last question, is there any value or could there be any benefit in using different mudras in formal practice? I want you to answer it for yourself. I'm not going to give you the answer there. If a person did nothing other than the basic practice, would the stages of insight happen naturally or are they something that needs to be taught? No, they would happen naturally. I mean, they happen to anyone who, who goes through, who becomes a sotapanna, becomes enlightened in any way. Um, but we have, you know, the, in our technique, we have a tradition. We have um, a format that's designed to you know, promote the realization of the stages of knowledge by increasing the complexity of the practice, as we've seen. Um, so it's a means of, of helping you along, increasing the sort of the, I guess the speed, making it easier, facilitating the realization of the knowledges and the progression through the knowledges. But absolutely, you know, you can walk three steps and go through all the stages of knowledge in those three steps. I have a friend who has suicidal thoughts just because she's in a situation where she is verbally abused very often by a narcissistic man she thinks is her teacher master. I don't pretend to know how karma works, but is there any way I can explain to her that she has other options other than just to endure or to purify karma, as she says? She meditates, but not our way. Why is her judgment so clouded? She can't break away from this man's influence. 
Yeah, teachers are dangerous. Religious people in general are dangerous. That's why a lot of people have turned away from religion. Um, well, why is why is there such a why is your judgment so clouded? I mean, it's easy when someone is charismatic, and when your mind is fragile, it's easy to to gain great and powerful faith in someone. I used to have a teacher who was very charismatic. I mean, I think in general he was teaching good things, but I ended up realizing that it was it was mostly charisma, mostly about playing games, mind games with the meditator to make them to give them faith and to make them believe that the teacher knew something or had special knowledge. And I really felt that. I really was totally confident about this guy and until it all fell apart and I realized, you know, actually he's just full of himself. <laughs> Sorry, shouldn't say that. I mean, honestly, this is the guy who taught me some really good things, but he was the one who first taught me how to meditate in this tradition. So he's teaching this tradition. Even even today he teaches it. Um, that's not, you know, I mean, none of us are perfect, so I probably shouldn't criticize him too much. You're supposed to have, you're supposed to appreciate the person who first Taught, taught you meditation. Ajahn Tong's always getting on my case about that, about that whole situation. I understand it. But, uh, sorry, I digress. Um, but I can understand how, you, how it's easy to get really caught up with someone who uh, you, know, you might see as actually somewhat narcissistic, but charismatic is really the key. If a person is charismatic, they... Uh, they're very much able to manipulate their students and to, to you know, cause them to do things they wouldn't normally do. Bhante, what about this idea that she she has to stay with him to purify her karma? I mean, is there anything that can be said about oh, that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's you can't if someone is you know why would they believe you more than they believe their teacher, right? Which, I mean, not to say they wouldn't, and I guess that's the thing, is you have to find a way to be more persuasive than the teacher. Which, yeah, involves helping her to see that what this teacher is explaining. I mean, it's the same with all religious people. I'd probably recommend letting her talk about it, asking her questions about the teacher, just, you know, non-probing questions just uh, helping her see clearly what it is that she's involved in. Being a good example for her. I mean, it, it often just comes back to being a good example because you can't fix other people's problems. In fact, often the more you try, the, the further you alienate them from you, themselves from you. So. You might want to, you know, Give her our booklet, my booklet on how to meditate, and say, maybe you want to try this out, and then and then leave her to it. You know, if she ever comes to the point where she sees there might be another way, maybe she'll be able to give it up. You know, I mean, be there for her for the things you can. If she's got suicidal thoughts, forget about the teacher and all that. That's her her choice. But help her deal with her suicidal thoughts. Be a friend to her. 
You can't fix other people's problems. You can't change other people's minds. But when people ask for help, when people are in dire straits, you can be there for them. Give them advice, give them support. There are so many spiritual traps out in the world and they all say about themselves that they are based on the Buddhist teaching. Why don't real Buddhists say something about them? How can people avoid falling into these deluded teachings in their search for spiritual awakening? That's a fair argument. Maybe I'm wrong to not talk about these things. I mean, I do talk about Buddhist things. Um, to me, that's something that I should talk about. I, 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 I get that. And I do. Not so much here, because I'm trying to focus on meditation questions, but um, it's a fair point. I mean, I've been recently, I wrote, not recently, but when? This year, last year, I wrote an article about the Heart Sutra. And I'm frequently fairly critical about Mahayana Buddhism or what has become Mahayana Buddhism, whatever that means. I mean, some aspects of Buddhism that call themselves the Mahayana fairly critical about their teachings because there are teachings out there that are, from my point of view, not Buddhist, not, not something that came from a Buddha. They claim to be, but they're not. So I'm willing to call those things out personally. But the funny, you know, the funny thing is if some of you know that whenever someone like I, some, you know, radical person like I do does that, like I does like me does that, um we get pounced upon, we get we get crapped on. I don't I didn't mention this, but like recently I was I told you I was in Toronto recently and I'm still puzzling it out, but uh this other Theravada monk there, I don't know if I should be saying these things on the air, I wasn't going to say anything, but I think it had something to do with me criticizing Chinese, you know, the Chinese Buddhism. But, you know, what I'd said, I think, at one point on YouTube was that the sutta that, that day was, I don't think it was ever spoken by the Buddha. And then, like, the next morning I got this email from a Theravada Buddhist monk who was there just scathing, calling me out, calling me a spoiled brat and talking about how how more when he looks at those monks, those Chinese monks, he sees them as so pure compared to me and I'm like a spoiled brat. Which was a bizarre email because he ends he ends it like, okay, respectfully, and then he signs his name. So I wrote back and I was I thought about it for a while and I was thankful. I said I said, you know, well thank you for your candor. I'm not sure if it was something, I have no idea. It could have just been something about him, but I'm happy to hear that I might be spoiled and childish and immature because I'm always happy to improve. But um, I got the feeling that it had something to do with, with some sort of criticism. And it's, a, it's just one example. Anytime you criticize anything, you know, people who criticize Islam, you know, I criticize Islam, but I see other people who publicly criticize Islam. What are they accused of? Racism. My little sister, we were, I was at my dad's house and we were talking about Islam. My father said something about he didn't like it or he said something bad. You know, and I, and, he, and my, 
my sister said, Dad, that's racist. And I said, no, it's not. Islam isn't a race. Islam is a religion. Yes, there's a lot of racism associated with you know, stereotyping at the very least, where people associate any Middle Eastern person. I have a friend, and uh, we, we did a peace studies project one of our mem one of the members on our team was when we did this peace symposium. One of them was a, a a Sikh, and she said she gets this all the time. Everyone thinks she's a Muslim. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with being a Muslim per se, but uh, as a result, she gets a lot of negative. I mean, it, it, I think at the time it wasn't that negative, but it's getting negative. Anyone who looks like a Muslim is. Uh, it has to, you know, sort of be afraid of that. So it's like anyone who is black is thought of as a criminal or a predator or that kind of thing, you know. So there's all that. But um, but my point was that we tend to gloss over the problems with things, you know, especially with religion. We have this idea of, I guess it's postmodernism to some extent, the idea that whatever you believe, that's that's right for you. Such a dangerous idea. No, it's not right for you just because you believe it. This is something that Buddhism is definitely against. Theravada Buddhism, anyway. My Buddhism is. Our Buddhism. No. Things you believe might be terribly, terribly wrong for you. I mean, we know this. Think about it. What a silly thing it is to think that a person's beliefs should be held sacred because they believe them. No, they shouldn't. Your beliefs might be awful and evil, of course. And what if you believe it's good to kill people? We should respect that and believe that rape is good. Torture, you believe it's right to torture people. So, uh, so the, the, how this relates to your question is, yes, I agree things should be said, but it's not as easy as just saying it. Sometimes you get yourself in more trouble than it's worth when you... And so this is why even enlightened beings, especially enlightened beings, you don't see them that often getting involved in such, uh, you know, like going out of their way to rail against the inequities or the uh, injustices of the world. They tend to focus, and I think that's why it's best best use of our time and effort to focus on meditation. This group, you know, questions about meditation. Yes, we're not. Some people are going to get lost because they misunderstand Buddhism, but there's lots of people who find the the path, and we can help all of those people, and then they can help others. So the best way is the, the most important is to help those people who are meditating and who are interested in the right things and are to have their head on straight to some extent. I am quite new to meditation, so I need some help. What would you recommend for a meditation habit? How long? You know, do some every day, but try and do both walking and sitting. Hopefully you've read my meditation booklet and I've started to practice that way, so otherwise, you know, there are other techniques and they'll have other things to say, but in our tradition, you do half walking and half sitting. Do walking first and then sitting, half and half. 
Sometimes you might just want to do sitting, that's fine, but when you have the, the energy for it, do both. And if you're able to do walking. But, uh, you know, even 10 minutes each is a good start. If you can do an hour or two a day, that's a great schedule. And if you have time, whenever you have time, you can do more than that or actually go and do a meditation course. That would be the greatest. And the best way to gain a meditation habit is to go and do an intensive course that really gives you a foundation and understanding of what meditation is because then, then the daily practice that you do is much more powerful, much more uh, efficient. Why are parents the first teachers or masters? How can we integrate this idea into practice? Thank you, Bhante. Well, they're your first teachers because they're the first people to teach you something. And that's important because very much of the core things that we learn about how to live come from our parents, most of us. Not all of us, but most of us. There's no integrating that into your practice. It's just a fact. And so recognizing that is important. If you, if you, um, you know, deny respect, or if you if you disrespect your parents, and if you're nasty and mean to your parents, and they've done these good things to you, for you, you know, sometimes we think, well, you know, I do things for them, they do things for me. We're kind of even, right? Why should I? respect them more than they respect me it's kind of foolish because they've done so much more for you than you have for them you can't do the things for them that they've done for you very difficult the buddha said to pay back your parents for most people unless your parents abandoned you and didn't do anything for you even then they argue well they still gave your mother still gave birth to you so there's that but uh, and you can never do that for her not in this life so even that is something powerful, but more than that, when our parents do raise us, to, to deny that and to ignore that and to think, well, I do good things for them is just ignorance, plain and simple. And you'll feel it when you meditate. You don't have to incorporate it into your practice, but you'll feel it. You'll feel all the bad things you've done to your parents. I don't have to tell you. You'll feel so terrible because of how awful a person you were to people who, who did good things for you. So what you should incorporate into your practice is asking forgiveness and trying to help them. Now, helping your parents is just wonderful if you've got parents who are actually, you know, besides the rare case, like a, there was this, had one student, her father raped her. I mean, that happens. Then I don't know what to say. Forgive him and, and try and make your way without him, I guess. And think of him of afar, pity him from afar. But uh, you know, for most of us, helping your parents is just an awesome thing when you have the chance. So there's something you know. Find a way. Find ways to help them. My father, I'm the comp I'm still the computer guy in the family. So my father uh, calls me up when he has just yesterday or the day before he called me up. He had a computer problem. So we spent about an half an hour, an hour figuring out how to log him back into his computer. 
he's not he's not dumb and he's really actually quite he's quite smart but he's not that good on computers and he's he's aged in his understanding you know i've got an edge on him still i'm losing my edge as i grow old but uh still know a thing or two about a thing or two so i was able to log in back in feels good to help my father you know i think it's the right thing to do but they do the khandas have a particular order order i wonder why Vinyana is mentioned last instead of second. Could you say something about this? I have no idea. You know, sometimes I don't, I don't get the the order of things. Some things. Sometimes I don't think there is quite the order that we we would. There is a quite a um, specific order. You know, I mean, sometimes, um, not in this case probably, but in some cases the Buddha would. Well, maybe in this case. The, the order has more to do with the order in which they're taught, right? When you sit down and you explain all five, teaching vinyana last, using, you know, when he actually speaks the words, speaking vinyana last may be the best way to enlighten the listeners, right? It may be that by going through the others first, by the time you come around to vinyana, um, the person is ready to understand things. That's, I would say, a, a, one of the big reasons why the Buddha orders, ordered things the way he did. That would be my guess. I don't know about the five aggregates, why they're ordered that way. I mean, vinyana, of course, that you're recognizing is it's the overarching um, thing. And it's interesting how the Visuddhimagga actually uh, does rupa and then vinyana, right? Maybe this is what you're realizing is that when we're studying in the Visuddhimagga, it does vinyana, it does rupa, and then vinyana. The Buddha didn't do that. The Buddha taught the other three first. No. Just one of those things. I wouldn't I wouldn't focus too much attention on it. Sometimes when I meditate, I don't have access to the meditation app. I've been recording the time when I get home. Is that lying as it's not recording the actual time I was meditating? I'm noticing a bothersome feeling in my mind. Do I understand this to be what is called an unwholesome state of mind? Yeah, I mean, worry is an unwholesome state of mind. Um, yeah, it's not perfect. I've done that. I did that once, I think. And, and it's funny, the one time I did it, I didn't do it quite like that. I didn't. What did I do? I started meditating and I thought I'd started the timer, but then I didn't. And when I finished walking, I realized I hadn't. So I started the timer then. And then by the time I came to the broadcast, my bell rang and everyone was laughing and calling me out. And some people were thinking, oh, he doesn't actually meditate. He just sets the timer to make it look like he does. Our teacher isn't actually meditating. One time I did this. Um, but yeah, there is something there. We've got a problem with this uh, this system in that regard. I mean, it's not really a problem, but it might be better not to do that. I mean, there's no pressure to record your meditation on this app, but um, you are kind of giving us all the impression that at that moment you're meditating. And if everyone started to do that, then they start to wonder, you know, are these people really meditating or are they not? You, you you add suspicion, you see. 
there's it says currently meditating and you're not currently meditating so probably better not to do that Bhante, what you say makes perfect sense but also you know, we, we sometimes call out people, oh, you know, you're asking a question and you haven't meditated. So mm. I wonder if there's a way to like kind of put in offline meditation. You know, plug in, somehow plug in the time that you are meditating that you can't be Maybe online. Someone, someone can open an issue to mm. allow you to just add and add in hours. I meditated. That's a bit complicated. Yeah, I, I know for myself, like if I have just a short amount of time, I'm not going to go and run and grab my phone and log in because by the time I do that, then I'll notice that I got three emails and then my 10 minutes to meditate is gone. So there's so much time that I don't bother to log in, but mm -hmm. it's, it's no meditation time. Yeah, I mean, I don't, it's not like I use this, I don't use this app to log my meditation. Just, just the one before, the one before the... Thing. I mean, it's Sorry. just it, it's 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 more than that. You know, the the whole thing is we want this to we want people to be in a good good mode. So the idea was, you know, do some meditation before this before this, uh, if possible, do some meditation before we meet, like, like recently before we meet, so that you're in a good state of mind when you come here. Yes, you do meditation other times, but it's not quite the point. It's fine, it's okay, but it would also be nice if you came here having just meditated so that your questions and your mind is in a good state. I don't know, I wouldn't take it too seriously. I would say not, don't bother. But yeah, there's people who are actually using this for commitments, right? Like how many they're doing every week. And then if you don't log it on time, well, we better add that then. You better be able to add time retroactively. Because that's right. It's better not to make it look like you are meditating. You should just be able to add add time. I don't care. I mean, what are people going to do? Lie about it? Pad their profile with hours and put it on their resume or something? So yeah, we should put that in. We should allow people to add time retroactively. Yeah, just so when we're, you know, because we're always looking at people's profile and saying, oh, this person doesn't meditate, so maybe not going to answer the question. They just don't post it. Yeah. Well, if someone can open an issue about that, uh, hopefully our awesome IT team can get around to it. Is there a subconscious? Is that a concept? Not exactly. There's kind of an... Um, a pilot light consciousness like you know how these old stoves have a pilot light or a gas stove has a pilot light a furnace has a pilot light it's this little flame that keeps burning so that whenever you turn the furnace on it can ignite it so there's always a there's always even when we sleep in deep sleep there's still a consciousness that's why you kind of have a feeling of time having passed when you wake up even though you weren't really conscious of it and it seems to go very quickly, but but it doesn't. It's not that it's just instantaneous. In between experiences, there is a consciousness, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't have any mystical power. It's just like a placeholder consciousness, waiting for something to impinge on the sense doors. Yeah, 
If I do more than three hours of meditation a day, I usually experience a severe lack of pleasure in everything. How can I deal with this? I'll meditate on it. Why do you want to have, do you want to be pleased by everything? If so, then you should say wanting, wanting, or if you're worried about it, you should say worried, worried. If you dislike it, how can you experience a lack of pleasure? It means you're not experiencing pleasure, which isn't a problem. You know, if you're not experiencing something, it's not a problem for you. But if you find that to be a problem, if you're worried about it or upset about it, that's where your problem is. Maybe you mean displeasure, in which case you have to be mindful of that. Bhante, if one is not enlightened, isn't the purpose of metta and karuna more about subduing one's own anger and cruelty instead of trying to change others? No, it helps to change others. Changes others and changes your relationship with them. I mean, subduing your own anger and cruelty is going to greatly change your relationship with them and it's therefore going to help them. It's going to make them more positively inclined towards you. Helping yourself, you help others. Helping others, you help yourself. So, I mean, uh, you know, helping others is... is is valid. It's valid. Helping other people to become enlightened is valid. You want to become a Buddha, that's part of your path. It's not that the only thing, and this is a good point, I suppose, it's not that the only goal in life is to enlighten yourself. Many people's goal is to enlighten others as well, and that's valid. It's not valid to, a valid goal is not to get married or to get rich, but a valid goal is to help other people become enlightened. You want to become a Buddha, that's part of your goal. Even many Arahants you know, help many others. It's part of their path, sort of. So I wouldn't really quite separate it out like that. I mean, you could argue that, yeah, what you're saying is important because a person who's not enlightened yet, it's important that they help themselves first. And that's important to point out, but... Helping others, you help yourself. So the good that you give to others through your love and your compassion is is a great help for you as well. I guess the only thing is you wouldn't be, you shouldn't be focusing on helping others until you're enlightened. I was reading a book by Geshe Kalsang Gyatso, and he was speaking about the six realms and that we could be born into while in samsara. Do you see these realms as real or just symbolic? I'm trying to better understand Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism so I can possibly choose a path to follow. Um, well, they're not symbolic, but uh, I mean, if you ask, is the human realm real? It's not symbolic. And you would say, well, of course it's real, but it's not really real. It's just a concept. It's a delineation. We call the human realm any, any realm that a human is born into, I guess, or the, the realm of experience of a human being. But it's not really a realm, right? Is this the human realm I'm in? Well, not really. But my universe is a human universe because I'm human. 
So when I see all this, human. Why? Because of me, because the experiencer is human. So there are, I mean, the realms are just ways of, of you know, they're just different, different kinds of experience. So there's, there are types of experiences or types of beings that are born in terrible straits and the experiences they have are full of suffering. And so we call those hell beings and hell realms. And all it means really is that person's having hellish experiences. Doesn't mean that they're still human. Doesn't mean that, that only humans exist and that we go through all the realms. No, no, there are actually beings that are not human. They don't look like this. They're in bodies that are far more coarse and unpleasant and they suffer terribly die again and again and they bleed and they suffer again and again and then there are beings that are that are their experiences their states of being that are pure and pleasant and agreeable hence so we call those the heavenly realms and heavenly beings but still just experience means there's great experience of pleasure all the time not human they don't look like this but um you know the way to go is you know, I, I or you or any of us can go to these places can can transform into one of these beings over time through dying out through this form dying away and through the mind that is pure or the mind that is defiled cultivating a new experience it cultivates an experience based on its its inclination. If it's inclined towards good things, it will cultivate a heavenly realm, a heavenly existence. If it cultivates, it's full of unpleasantness. It will cultivate a, an unpleasant realm, an unpleasant existence. One day, is the human realm close to the animal realm, since we obviously are sharing experience with one another is it's not real there's no such thing as the human realm what, what is meant by the human realm is the um the sphere of rebirth so you can be reborn as a human means there's a human realm bumi is uh, just means the soil really soil is maybe a good way to understand it you can grow in in that soil or, or basis, there's the basis for existence that is human. You can be born as a human. You can be born in hell. It's a basis. You can be born as an animal. It doesn't mean the animals have their own realm. It means uh, there is a basis of existence that is called the animal existence. And of course, it's subdivided into so many different types of existence by so many different types of animals. That's all they mean. It's just, a, and it's really just a, a classifying into six or ten or twelve or thirty-one. There's thirty-one realms in in Abhidhamma tradition, or not Abhidhamma, but Theravada tradition, I guess. Um, uh, it's just a classification. I guess what I'm asking is because you know, as we walk around and experience our universe we run into animals whereas we may think we hear angels or 
you know, but I mean, we definitely run into animals. They're they're all around us. So, is there? Well, it's because their their nature is very similar to ours. I mean, angels are apparently all around us, but their nature is just so different from ours that we're not able to perceive them. Not without intense spiritual practice. Thank you, Bhante. The recognition where we're in all that, I'm sorry, the recognition wherein all that is conditioned arises and ceases, the space that emits love in no direction, but is love, is space for form to arise. What can you say about an experience like this? Those sound like two very different experiences. Seeing that all thing, all that is conditioned arises and ceases is one thing. The experience of being love is another experience. And it's not just an experience, it's also an interpretation. Um, so recognizing we're in all, recognition wherein all that is conditioned arises and ceases. You know, I mean, it's it it can just be a a conception. It doesn't have to be recognition, because when you recognize that everything arises ceases, um, the only way you can really experience that is through nibbana, because nibbana is non-arising. There's no arising in nibbana. It doesn't arise. It doesn't cease. So through that experience, that's how someone realizes that all that arises ceases. Beyond that, for most people, it's just a conception. You don't actually understand that. You see it again and again, things arising and ceasing, and you might come logically to the conclusion that all that arises ceases. But it's not really knowing it. And that's important because, well, if, if through the realization of Nibbana, you will see the difference. You will... You will be blown away by the truth that all that arises actually does cease. As for being love, that's just a conception. There's no such thing really as being love. There's an experience of love. And then there, there's probably a conceiving that as being love. So what does it mean to be love? Love is an experience. Love is a state of mind. And it's not just love, there's pleasure as well, usually. Love is actually a very small part of what we think of as love. Most of it is just the pleasure and the liking of the state, attachment even. Because how could you call it love if it doesn't have an object? Usually it's just, well, usually it's just kind of loving a state, right? A state of pleasantness, a state of bliss. It's probably what, I mean, that's my guess. There, there's so many different states and we can call them many different things, but that's what it sounds like to me. Bhante, I don't always log in when I meditate. Sometimes I'm not at my computer to log in. Do I really have to use my phone? I don't carry it with me all the time. No, I mean, if you want to use this platform as a commitment, um, as a way of committing, then 
it's up to you there's no must uh, the thing is if you're going to ask questions we'd like to know that you're actually a meditator so I know that you're a meditator that's fine but some people if I don't recognize them and they start asking weird questions then I can click on their username and say oh you don't meditate with us I'm not going to answer your question I mean, we were getting that before. I'm not getting any of those questions now, but we've got good questions. But we were getting speculative questions, and I started to say, yeah, these are too speculative. Look, you guys aren't meditating. I'm not answering your questions. But I'm not, I think we're not really going to be checking on people. I mean, this new site isn't the same setup anyway, but um, you know, use this site if it's useful for you. Come meditate with us before or whenever, you know. Lots of people using the site, so it appears to be useful. Hopefully it stays useful. Most useful is this meeting, I think, that we have, right? But um, the point was to make sure that the understanding is that this meeting is for meditators. It's not just for people curious or speculative. Do dreams have meaning in Buddhism? Thank you, Bhante. Not really. They can. Usually they don't. And even if they do, they really don't. Because any meaning that they might have is just conventional. They might predict the future or they might be trying to teach you something, but the things they can teach you are only conventional. They can't teach you the truth of reality. So they're not really all that useful. All right, it's after 10. That's enough. Good night, everyone. Thank you, Robin, for being with us. Thank you, Bhante. Good night. Yeah.